You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Uh, wonderful to be together this morning. If we've not met, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to welcome you and uh, welcome you if you're watching online as well. Uh, great to have you with us this morning. Um, well, today we sort of wrap up a study that we've been in all summer. And uh, I'll give you a little heads up on where we're going. I think I mentioned this last week. But next week, um, we will uh, have a message about our theme for the year. So each year, we have a theme of emphasis. This past year, it was uh, discovering our place in God's mission. And um, this next year, we want to talk a lot about the next generation. We're going to really emphasize uh, this theme to uh, reach and to equip the next generation. And uh, that is something that is very relevant for all of us. Maybe you say like me, uh, hey, I don't have kids uh, that are, you know, under 18 in the church. Uh, so I don't have kids and grace kids or the square, but this is a relevant topic to all of us. The Bible says that in Psalm 145, that one generation shall commend your works to another. And that's not just a generation of parents or a generation of, uh, you know, grace kids or children's ministry teachers. That's everybody that the church is to proclaim and always be looking to the next generation for the church. Uh, were it not for the faithfulness of God is one generation away from extinction. Now, uh, we trust the Lord that that's not the case. God is faithful one generation to another, but, uh, the, we always need to be, you know, concerned with what is the Lord doing in the next generation, which is the harvest field and, uh, which is our responsibility as parents and as church, as a church overall to serve and to help and to come alongside and to, uh, cast vision for the next generation to get the gospel to them. And as a church, we want to partner with parents in that process. So anyway, we'll be talking about that next week. Uh, and then we're going to do a couple of standalone sermons. And then in September, uh, we're going to kick off a series on first Peter. And uh, some of that will be tied to the next generation, especially the introduction as we look at that book together. So you could start reading ahead there if you'd like to and get familiar with that wonderful book. But today we're going to close a, a series on Elijah and Elisha called Grace in the Dark. And this is always sad for me to close a series. I spend the better part of my week with Elijah and Elisha, and then, you know, they're saying goodbye to them. It's always a little bit sad, like if you watch a, you know, you watch a series or something on Netflix, the last one, you're kind of like, oh, man, well, this is better than that. That's not a real great comparison, but uh, this is the Word of God after all. So it's a little bit more enduring, but, uh, but you know that feeling of, oh, it's over. What do I do now? Well, you start reading First Peter is what you do, and we'll start moving uh, there uh, very soon. But today we're going to conclude this series, and we're going to look at a story from the life of Elisha, and then we're going to look at the account of his death, and we're going to skip a bunch of chapters in between because they're all about kings battling and all this kind of stuff. Um, so uh, we're going to skip that. So I'm going to look at a section of chapter 8, and then we'll look at a section of chapter 13 with you today. And let's begin in uh, chapter 8, reading verses 1 through 6. And let's listen together. This is the word of God for the people of God. Verse 1. Now Elisha 
had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, this servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord, O king, here's the woman and here's her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now, we've talked a lot about this whole series. Whenever we read a passage, we want to see what does this passage teach us about God? Uh, that has rev- relevance to us. How do we apply it to our lives? We don't start there. That's not our primary concern. Our primary concern is what does it teach us about God? And on the surface, this passage clearly teaches us something about uh, the providence of God, right? Providence is the biblical truth that God sustains and directs all that he has created especially his people. So when we talk about the doctrine of providence, we could be talking about uh, the, the solar system and you know the, uh, God sustaining all the stars and planets. We could be talking about God sustaining our planet, or we could be talking, which is frequently the case, about God working in the lives of his people, God directing through his invisible hand the affairs of our lives. That's really what we're talking about usually. And so this is clearly a passage about the providence of God, isn't it? I mean, what are the chances that this lady uh, is coming to ask for help from the king? And it just so happens that Gehazi, the uh, servant of Elisha, is talking with the king and describing this lady whose son died and, and, you know, is risen uh, from the dead. And then all of a sudden she walks in. Well, it, it certainly is a story about the providence of God, and we'll look at that in a moment. But there's another theme that shows up in this passage, and it it, it occurs through a repeated phrase. Four times in this passage, there's a reference to God as the one who restores to life. That's really an underlying theme, a foundational theme here, is that God is the one who gives new life. Verse 1, Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household, whose son he had restored to life. Verse 5, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord, Lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. So four times in this short passage, there is a message about God restoring to life. So on the surface, The timing, which is this divine coincidence, this unbelievable that she's there at just the right moment, 
Uh, that stands out to us. But there's this underlying truth that's a far more startling truth. And that's that the boy who is in the room was dead and now he's alive. And we re- read all about that back in chapter 4 of Second Kings. Uh, this lady who's called a Shunammite, that means she's from Shunem. Uh, she was a lady of means and Elisha would frequently visit and uh, she'd have him over for dinner. They'd give Elisha something to eat. And then what happened was she and her husband decided, let's just build a room onto our house. And so when the prophet comes to town, he can just stay with us. So she does that. They build a house. The prophet stays with them regularly. And, and one day the prophet says to her, hey, what do you need? What can I do for you? And she, in essence, says, I don't need anything. And Gehazi, his servant, who's talking in this chapter, says, she doesn't have a son. And so Elisha says, by this time next year, you will have a son. And it comes to pass. She has a son. Miraculously, evidently, she was unable to conceive, but has a son. And then what happens is the son gets a little bit older and he dies. And Elisha, through prayer, uh, you know, the Lord answers his prayer and raises this boy to new life. So that's the story behind this, this miracle. And then what happens in the chapter we're reading now is that Elisha comes to her and he gives her a prophetic tip. He says, there's going to be a famine for seven years. So why don't you get out of here, go live somewhere else. So you'll have some food to eat. Thank you very much. So you will have some food to eat. So that's what happens. Uh, she goes away and she goes to, um, Uh, she goes to live for seven years uh, among the land of the Philistines. And then she comes back. And when she comes back, she's presumably a widow. We don't know when her husband died. He's alive in chapter four. He's not alive now, evidently, because she is coming to see the king. Because what has happened is while she's been away for seven years, someone has taken her house and someone has taken her land. And now she is Uh, you know, a widow returning and she has no voice in this culture, uh, a widow without a, um, without a husband or, or a grown son perhaps, but without a husband really had no protection, had no legal voice. So she has no way to be able to, you know, get her land back from whoever's taken it. It may be the king. This was common that the king would, uh, the government would take land. So the king may have taken it. We don't know. But she goes in without representation to see the king and to say, you know, I, can I have some justice here? I left for seven years and what I owned was taken away from me. Now, we're, if you've been tracking the story, we're alarmed to find out the next thing we hear is that the king is talking with Gehazi. Because back in chapter 5, I know this is a lot of background. So if you've been around, you, you would know this. If not, you're kind of catching this for the first time. But this guy Gehazi had been cursed with leprosy because he was greedy and he was deceptive. And so the last we met him in chapter five, he had just uh, instantly contracted leprosy uh, by divine curse. And uh, now he's talking with the king. So how is that possible? Because I, I want to address this, because if we don't address this, you'd be just going, hey, wait a minute. I was tracking with this, and what, why is that guy back in the scene? You're, you're, you know, if you have leprosy, you are banned from interaction with others because of the uh, contagion of the disease. And so uh, there's probably two ideas that this is possible. It's possible that Gehazi has repented, um, and God has healed him. That's possible. The text doesn't say that, but that could be wise here. Or the other reason, which many lean on, is that uh, this event happened before. 
what happened in chapter 5 with Gehazi. Uh, Sometimes in biblical narrative, there will be a recounting. Everything doesn't have to just follow one event after another. That would be common in modern uh, historical narrative as well. You could be talking about something, could be writing about a president and uh, tracking him by year and then saying, oh yeah, here was the way he dealt with the war. And then all of a sudden we're back talking about the beginning of the war and what that president did. So it wouldn't be uncommon for us to have something like that either in our recounting of narrative history. So either this happened before he got leprosy or he's been healed, uh, but somehow he is able to hang out with the king. And the king is doing this deal where he's saying, tell me some stories about Elisha. Elisha, all kinds of amazing miracles the Lord did through him. Some of them kind of quirky. Uh, and there's one left. We're going to close with a miracle. Uh, but they always had these kind of quirky miracles happening. And so tell me, like, what was the most incredible thing you ever saw, Gehazi? You were, all, you were there with him. So it's like meeting someone who was an assistant to someone famous. And you're like, well, what happened? And what were they really like behind the scenes? And what really happened? Tell me about that time. That's what he's doing. Tell me about that time of Elisha. So Gehazi begins to tell him, hey, look, one time, one time he raised a boy from the dead. No way. So he tells him the story. And uh, then all of a sudden, after he tells him the story, Gehazi looks up in in, in verse five and says, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored comes in and appeals to the king. So it's like, okay, here's your next appointment, king. Oh, that's the lady. And and that guy, that boy that's with her, that's the kid who was dead. And now he is alive. And so the king asks her about it. Is this true? And, you know, she tells her story. And it's just to point out to us that an event like this is so unlikely. It's near impossible. Not impossible, but near impossible Uh, barring God's providence that this would happen, that an unrepresented widow would show up at just the moment. And look what happens. Not only does the king grant her request, but it says in verse six, the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers along with all the produce of the fields from the day she left from the land until now. So not only does she get her land back, get justice, but she gets everything, the value, she gets the value of everything that could have been grown in a seven-year period. Perhaps that was slim given the um, famine, but, she, but, but ultimately it's, it, it seems to be the picture of give her all that was hers, the produce of the fields from the day she left until now. So what would be produced in that time, they give that to her. So when we consider this Shunammite lady, what do we, and her family, her son as well, what do we learn about God? Well, we learn that God, uh, that God restores life, that God renews life because the boy was dead and now he's there. And we learn also that the same God that restores life sustains life. He doesn't just give the boy new life and say, okay, now you're on your own. You know, good, good luck. Hope everything works out. But God sustains his people. That's the reminder of here that God particularly cares for his covenant people and he will do whatever is necessary to meet their needs. God will move the pieces on the chessboard, as it were, to accomplish his purposes. And that's exactly what he does here. It's uncanny, the timing 
Do you see the timing of how this all worked out? Do you see him bending the heart of the king? There is no given that if she had just shown up, she would have gotten justice. We see the kings of this time who were uh, failing to serve the Lord. They were unfaithful. We see Ahab killing a guy named Naboth just to get his vineyard. So a previous king kills someone to take his land. There is no guarantee that she gets her land back, much less, you know, a personal uh, concierge to help her out and to restore to her everything that was lost. Do you see the the Lord working in the king to show favor upon her? This is a narrative account, a living illustration of Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is what it says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Here's what that means. When he says it's that the king's heart is a stream of water, he's talking about like a channel of water or an irrigation ditch. It's something that could be turned easily. So a farmer could take the water that comes in the irrigation ditch and turn it this way or turn it that way. Uh, turn the channel this way or that way to uh, get water to the, to the land, to the crop. And so he's saying the king's heart is like that. The Lord can turn the king's heart wherever he wants. And, and, and what's really being communicated here is that the most powerful person in the land, the king, who can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. There's, he doesn't have to run it by, he doesn't have to get approval from Congress The Supreme Court's not going to overthrow what he did. There's no checks and balances. The king just says, this is what's going to happen, and it happens. And so he has all authority. He's sovereign with a small s over the land. But this is what that scripture says, is that there's one over that king. There's one behind the scenes that will even turn the will of the king of the Lord. We're so enamored with human will. But the reality is God can turn a will the way he wants. And he says it for the king because that shows it's the most powerful decision maker. So I don't know who in your life you view as a powerful decision maker whose decisions um, can turn your life in one direction or another. If you're a young person, that would be your parents. Um, If you uh, work, that would be your boss. Um, You know, somebody that, that, that it could be the civil authorities. Who is it that has authority over us that can turn, you know, sort of turn the direction of our life? What the Lord wants you to know is there's one greater than that one who can turn his or her heart toward you. He turns it wherever he will, wherever he pleases. So whatever someone can do to us, it's just, they just have a, they're a secondary cause. The primary cause is God. And this is to be deeply encouraging because in this situation, we see that happening. We see the Lord ultimately seeing that she has favor and he does this through the timing of orchestrating everything that happens in this story. I mean, just back it up and think, how did this happen? So he, he got Gehazi before the king at a certain time. He has the king have an interest. Oh, you're the guy who serves Elisha? Well, let me, let, let me ask you about what all he's done. And as Gehazi thinks through all he's done, he tells the story of the woman. Well, it just so happens that the Lord orchestrated at that time, she got an audience with the king. So he does all of these things 
to, in the right moment, sustain her by giving her her land, by giving her her house, and blessing her on top of that. He not only gives her justice, he gives her a blessing beyond that. And let's back up and say, even before that, God spoke to Elisha to speak to the woman so that her family wouldn't starve and they would go to a land to get food. So you just see the hand of God stirring everything to bless the woman from Shunem, the Shunammite and her son. We all have stories like that in our lives. Some of them we don't even know. You don't know what happened here or there to cause that. We don't even know. If we could only see the hand of of the Lord at work for his people, we'd be blown away. But we all have our story of God's timing or God's person. Someone told me about this. Someone invited me here. I met this person and everything changed. It could have been you met your spouse or you met someone, you found out that there was a job available. That's the story of our church. We're sitting here right now uh, because of divine providence where God orchestrated our being here on this land, in this spot at this time. We frequently told the story, but it is just a, a, and like this, I believe an uncanny story of God's providence where a developer who developed all this land, well, at least south of the street here, I mean, this land back over here, uh, was developing all that. He sold it all off many years ago, uh, but he kept this little portion, this piece of land uh, because he wanted a church to be on it. And so someone let us know that there was a denomination that had been given this land. Um, and we're not trying to take anything from another denomination, but they were given this land and weren't going to use it uh, because there was some stipulation over the land that whoever took it had to uh, build property on it within a certain amount of time, and they weren't going to be able to do that. So uh, we found out who the developer was who was giving said property away. And, uh, you know, if someone's giving, we're happy to be receiving uh, to, to, to be a blessing to him. So uh, at any rate, we met with him, and actually we knew they weren't going to use the land. This is the part of the story that never gets told. We knew that they weren't going to use the land before he knew. We actually told them that because we had been told from an elder in a church in the denomination that owned this land, hey, we're not using that land. So we went to the developer and said, hey, we hear they're not using the land. That was news. So uh, then we worked it all out, and then he showed us the plat of the land, opened up the plat, and showed us that he or the city, I'm not sure which, but I assume he, had named these streets Grace Street and Church Street. He didn't know us, didn't even know that was the name of our church. And when we told him that, that these two streets were our very name, uh, it wasn't a given that we would get the land at that moment, for sure. He did his due diligence. But it it was a remarkable providence for God to have favor uh, on us. And the other denomination is doing well. They've since planted a church in the city, and they're great. So, uh, But they weren't going to use this, so we were able to get the land. But it was just a... It felt it could have just been, wow, that's uncanny. How did that happen? How did the Lord make all of that go together? See, the reality is God doesn't just do a miracle and give you new life and say, good on you. I hope everything works out. 
We're not deists. We don't just believe that God creates, or we don't just believe he creates and then redeems and you're on your own. He is orchestrating our lives every step of the way. And this passage shows so clearly that God is one who provides care and sustenance for his people. I wonder, what is your Shunammite moment? Maybe it's not something as dramatic as this, but what's your moment? When was it that God orchestrated? You think, man, if I hadn't been there, if I had been an hour later or a day later, or a week later, I wouldn't have had this contact. Some of you, it's being in this church. You happen to meet someone. I was talking to someone yesterday and they told me, yeah, many years ago, my neighbor just was talking to me about and told me about this church. Well, what if that wasn't your neighbor? Or what if your neighbor had, her neighbor had kept it to herself? This is many years ago. When we were first starting, she was just telling me yesterday, the neighbor told me about this church and I came and I've been here ever since. So maybe it was that. Maybe it was uh, how you met Christ. Man, if that person hadn't shared or had that bad event hadn't happened, what is your Shunammite moment? You know, I thought this would be a great thing. Tonight's the first community group, right? If you're a Sunday night group for the year, I know you have an agenda, but this might be a question that would be helpful. A history giving, get to know you question. What, what is your Shunammite moment could, or moment? Could you share at a time where you saw God's providential hand? Maybe not this dramatically, but you saw God's providential hand orchestrating your life. And how does that give you confidence moving forward? I mean, when we think about how God's been faithful to us, that gives us faith to pray for what's coming up. What, what are you praying about right now? And as you read an account like this, God wants to stir a faith in you that as you're praying about things, you could imagine by God's grace what he might do to coordinate, to orchestrate, to bring about his will in your life. He is always acting for our good. And if you feel like God has forgotten you, he has not. He's always acting for our good, even in our bad, even when things are tough and difficult. God is doing something. Because he not only restores the young boy, he sustains the family. And that's true for all of us. Well, next we're going to look at, let's look in chapter 13, if you'd move forward. We're going to look at the end of Elisha a little bit here. And uh, we're going to see the same two themes. God gives life and God sustains life. So in chapter uh, 13, verse 14, it says, we'll read 14 through 19. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha's dying uh, and Joash the king comes to see him. Joash is crying. 
Um, and he calls him, you know, uh, he calls him, uh, my, Lord, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. This is the exact same thing that was said when Elijah died, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What's he saying? Well, what the king is saying is if you die, our defense is gone. You are our defense because you bring the word of God to us. You bring direction to the king. You tell us where to go here and where to go there. He's saying, you are the chariot and horsemen. You are our defense because the word of God is protection for the people of God. And he feels like with the prophet gone, they will lose the direction from the Lord. Well, what Elisha does uh, in his response as he's about to die is that he leads him through this acted oracle. And this one's mysterious, man. All kinds of stuff around Elisha is like, what? What's happening there? What's he doing? Why is he saying that? There's always something a little bit unusual. Uh, so this one is no exception. He, he gives him a prophetic word through a symbolic act. So it's an enacted word from God. And he, he tells him to get a bow and he tells him to stretch it. And Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. This is probably like blessing. It's like laying on of hands. It's probably a blessing him and a sign that the Lord is with you. And he says, shoot. And he lets the arrow go out the east, uh, eastward out the window. And he says, this is the arrow of victory against Syria. So what he's saying is when you shot that out, that's, that was symbolic of the destruction that you will do to Syria. You will defeat Syria, which had been their nemesis. He prophesies that, that you'll defeat him at Aphek. Well, he tells the king next to take some arrows and hit the ground, strike the ground with them. And he does it three times and stops. And then Elisha gets angry for some reason and tells him, well, you should have done that more. You should have done that five or six times, and uh, that would have made an end of Syria. But since you only did it three times, you're going to defeat them three times, but not completely make an end of them. Why does he say that? What is going on here? You tell me. Uh, we, we don't get an explanation. It doesn't say why. But I think if we, and we have, so we have to speculate. But I think if we have to speculate, reasonable speculation would be that we, the, the king knew that the arrows had prophetic significance. He knew that because he had just done the arrow illustration prophetic word thing. So he knew that. So perhaps what's happening is his striking the ground seemed half-hearted. Um, maybe it wasn't faith-filled or enthusiastic, something like that. That's the only thing that, that, uh, that, it's, that it seems could be. So that, you know, uh, Elisha is here giving a prophetic word to him, but there doesn't seem to be the sort of, uh, the sort of vision and faith uh, by responding to what Elisha's telling him to do. So perhaps that's it. Uh, I don't know for sure. But at any rate, he, he tells him, hey, you know, it's going to, uh, um, you, you know, it's going, it's, you're not going to fully wipe them out. You're just going to defeat them. And then what happens next is uh, Elisha dies after that. So it sort of ends on a down note. Like you're going to win. God's going to be faithful. And you're going to win, but you're not going to win like you could have if you had enthusiastically responded to the prophecy from God. 
Well, Elisha was used in unusual ways in his life, wasn't he? He did things like, but God used him, these are God's miracles, to multiply oil so that there was this, this, uh, this uh, you know, an amazing amount of container after container after container after container of oil that was produced by Elisha's word. At one time, there's a contaminated water source, and Elisha just threw some salt in it and cleaned the entire water source up. One time he caused an, an iron ax head to float in the water so that the guy who lost it could retrieve it. So God does all this unusual stuff in his life. You can't expect something's going to happen unusual when he dies. So read verse 20 and here's what we get. So Elisha died. This is the next verse after the striking the arrows. Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now that's wild. Okay. <laughs> that, that is wild stuff. You know, what, what's going on there. Uh, so there's a funeral going on, and as they're about to bury, a, you know, they're getting ready to bury a, a person, a guy. These marauders come in to, to steal from everybody, so they just say, quick, we got to run. What do you do with the body? Just throw it in that cave. So there's like a cave, probably a tomb. Throw it in there. It happens to be where Elisha's bones are. They touch him, and the guy springs to life. One commentator said, man, you wouldn't expect Elisha just to rot away, right? I mean, (laughs) after all the stuff that that guy's used in, there's got to be one more, one more miracle even after he is gone. This isn't some kind of magic. Um, It's certainly not a, a, um, it's certainly not a biblical precedent that we are to go around finding relics and touch them and be healed or something like that. That's not what's being communicated as if that's a standard thing that we're to be doing. Um, but it's a reminder that God gives new life. God gives new life. It's a hopeful event that the power that was in Elisha's ministry didn't depart when he departed. The power was the word of God to bring new life. That's what's going on here is that the, the bearer of, lie, the, of the word of God, who the king says, we're going to be defenseless without you. He's gone and there's still miracles happening because the power's not in him. The power is in God's Holy Spirit who speaks his word to us. And the first readers of Kings were likely those in exile. This would have been tremendously encouraging them to them. One commentator, Roger Ellsworth, said, This shows that the word of God, which Elisha had so faithfully borne, was still mighty and powerful, even though the prophet himself had died. What comfort there was here for the captives. He's talking about in exile. They must have thought their nation was as good as dead. But because of the powerful word of God, their nation would live again. And so this story shows that God is the restorer of life. And you say, well, the other point was God sustains life. Where is that in this passage? passage? You know, Elisha dies, so he wasn't sustained. The other guy comes to life, so we see new life. But where is sustaining? If we go two verses down, we see something very powerful. Verse, the next verse, actually, this is the next verse. Verse 22, 
says, now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor was he, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. He gives new life through his word, and because he's faithful to his covenant, he will never cast his people away. He will always uh, keep us. His presence will always be with us. This is the story of the Old Testament. God gives new life. He frees them as slaves, his people. He frees them as slaves from Egypt. He brings them into a new land. And even though they act foolish and sinful so often, he stays with them. He is faithful to them because of the promise he made to Abraham. He stays with his people. He sustains his people through all manner of difficulty. And the truth is the same in the New Testament, that God gives us new life through Jesus Christ, who dies for our sins on the cross, who is raised to new life, who ascends to the right hand of the Father, who pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. His Holy Spirit gives us new life. We'll see in 1 Peter, it says that he has caused us to be born anew, that his Spirit has given us new life, but that's not all. He is sustaining us, and he will sustain us to the end. A New Testament verse that shows this is Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began a new work in the Shunammite boy and for the Shunammite mom. And he continued the good work by restoring what they lost to them and sustaining them in their place. He shows new life by a dead guy touching his Elisha's bones and coming back to life, but ensuring that the king of Syria never defeated Israel completely because God was faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It mirrors what we see in the new covenant, that God is sustaining us. And there's some here today, you're wondering, is God really going to sustain you? Maybe you don't question whether you're saved. Maybe you have assurance of salvation, you just question, are you going to make it to the end? And the message of God is to you today that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You will not lose what God has done in you. God will bring it to completion. He is completing you. He is working in you. He is completing us. He is working in us. He is not abandoning us. There are times God seems absent There are times we say, how long, O Lord, just like the psalmist, where are you? But we will see at the return of Jesus that he has never left us or forsaken us, that he has been faithful to us at all times. And he will on occasion do what appear to us miraculous providences to give us those reminders that yes, he's with me. Yes, this This coordinated perfectly. Only God could have done that. Yes, God answered this prayer. Yes, God provided from this surprising means. Yes, God spoke and God acted. He is working all things together for our good. And he is moving through normal providences like your job and your your paycheck, biweekly paycheck. That feels like a very normal providence, but it's still the hand of God. And he will work at times through unusual, startling providences, which remind us God is with us. 
God is with me. God will hold me to the end. We're going to apply this passage today, I think, in in what I trust is a meaningful and a powerful way. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. But as we do this, I want us to think about this, that we often think about the body of Christ and his blood shed for us as the means of our conversion. Like Jesus died for me, so now my sins are forgiven and I'm, I'm a new creation. That is true. But it's also the meal that we eat regularly because it has a sustaining power. There is a sustaining power. It's really baptism that communicates God gave you new life. And, and, you know, that that happens as you come up out of the water is representation of that we have experienced new life. But the Lord's Supper not only communicates that we're one in Christ because of his shed blood and his broken body, but it communicates to us this. This is the regular meal of the church that has sustaining power. That's why it's called the supper. You're not going to be, this isn't lunch. You're not going to be sustained off this. It's, it's small. But it it is a reminder that God feeds and God nourishes and God sustains. Yes, he gives new life. Yes, praise God, we're born again. Yes, our sins are forgiven and we're new people. Yes, we're adopted. But the father never allows his adopted children to wander off and be lost and left. He is always with us. And as we receive this today, let's remember that we're trusting in Jesus and your life story is you've proved him or and or, as we sang this morning, over and over again, his faithfulness. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.